Do you need some help? Um, yeah, Cheryl talked about our valuable friendship, which is very valuable. What she didn't mention is that in my l late years in life right now, um, what she's very valuable to me is she goes and eats with me. <laughs> we just try out restaurants once a month, and it's all about the food. And um, <laughs> the other the other thing is, Tamara, when I heard she was going to be the speaker, I got excited because <laughs> I'm telling you, she's worth her weight in gold. She gave me advice, random advice. I asked her, you know, um, when do I have to get my PowerPoints in? And she goes, last weekend. If I wanted to use PowerPoints, I had to get them in last weekend. I said, forget it. I am trying to fine tune my swimming so I can participate in the world's shortest triathlon ever. <laughs> She goes, well, you know, as a swimmer, I think you shouldn't tr attempt too many strokes before you try to breathe. You should go like, one, breathed. And I said, gosh, I never thought of that. <laughs> and that was what was happening to me. I did not have the energy to do all the laps. And I did what she told me, and I finished the try. <laughs> I finished. I did the swimming, and that was what was tripping me up. I am forever in her debt. Um, even though it was the shortest triathlon ever. <laughs> well, um, I became acquainted with Jesus when I was a small child. My parents took me to this little church in New York City's Chinatown, a little storefront church. And I was three or four years old, and my Sunday school class was in the back of the room. And I remember in that little storefront church, Every Sunday, I looked at this portrait of Jesus in that little back room. It was a big portrait of Jesus in a distressed white wooden frame. And Jesus was dressed in this flowing gown. He had a rope belt around him. And he had a little lamb on his, in his arm and lots of little lambs around his feet. And he had a gentle smile. And this Jesus was gentle, kind. His hair was parted in the middle, always. And he had long... <laughs> Uh, light brown hair. And I looked at this Jesus, and that is my portrait of Jesus, gentle, kind, and sweet. Um, and then growing up in the church, there was these countless, you know, um, flannel board stories. If you grew up in the church, you would have heard them. Here's Jesus going across the flannel board. He looks up in a tree. He sees Zacchaeus. Come on down. I'm coming to your house for dinner. And then there's Jesus walking on the water to his disciples bobbing on the boat. And then there's Jesus sitting on the big rock with little children all around him, and he's telling them, you need to be kind to people, treat them the way you want to be treated. And I remember growing up in that church, every time Easter came around, and they talked about Jesus being crucified and all these people saying, crucify him, crucify him, it was a disconnect. I said, why would anyone want to kill Jesus? He was like Mr. Rogers. I mean, that was my concept of Jesus. Why would anyone want to kill him? And I, I just never got it. When I was a teenager in New York City, I went to Central Park one day. I went to school up in the Bronx, and you know, I took my time getting home into Manhattan. And inevitably, I would hang out in Central Park. And there was this hippie itinerant speaker there that day by the name of Arthur Blessed. Here I met a Jesus, a new Jesus. Um, and Arthur Blessed, I don't know 
he was this hippie guy who was going to carry this heavy cross from New York City all the way to California. I don't know if he's ever made it. But that day, he introduced me to a new Jesus. He talked about a Jesus who stood apart from the establishment, a Jesus who was always out of sync with this world, a Jesus who hated hypocrisy, you know, who came to this world not to win friends or influence people, but he came to save us from destruction. And he talked about God loving us, but that they were not always spoken in kind and gentle words. And he talked about Jesus who offended lots of people. And this Jesus, spoken by Arthur Blessed that day, really penetrated my heart. And I consider that day in the streaming rain in Central Park as the day that I chose Jesus, that I became a follower of Jesus. And that was the day I chose the living God, a Jesus who did not bend to the status quo of the day. Um, a Jesus who was anti-establishment and he came to show the world that God loved hum humanity. And Jesus, the Jesus I chose that day was a Jesus who fit the spirit of that time, that generation. He really did. And I was a product of that time. It has been 36 years since that day I met Jesus. I've lived many lifetimes. I moved from New York City, and that edgy person I was growing up in New York City, I moved to Dallas, Texas. <laughs> from Dallas, Texas, I lived a lifetime there. I moved to Chicago and lived a lifetime there. And then I moved to California. You know what? My priorities, my views have changed, have evolved, and have e returned. Which Jesus would I choose today? The gentle, serene figure of my childhood in that little back room? Or the blazing revolutionary that Arthur Blessed talked about? I realized that um, in my spiritual journey, there has been a continual danger to remake Jesus to fit the spirit of the time, to fit where I am, to fit what I wanted him to fit. Whereas the Jesus that fit my life in Dallas, man, it was different. The Christians in Dallas were very different. In Chicago, in California. You know, a um, number of years ago when my kids were in high school, there was this big thing, WWJD, Guys, remember it? We would were, we were laugh, what would Jesus do? And then a few years after that came out, there was a new uh, thing. WWJD does not mean what would Jesus do. It would mean what would Jesus drive? And that was when um, the uh, environmentalists said, if you really want to pattern your life after Jesus, you would never drive a gas guzzler, OK? Because uh, there's no way the god of this universe would ever do anything bad for the environment. So the media bliss was WWJD. What would Jesus drive? He would definitely not drive an SUV. He would drive hybrid. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if Jesus would drive a hybrid. And then, you know, I mean, let's take it another step further in today's day. Would Jesus support a boycott of the Olympics? Some people said yes, definitely 
because it's all about human rights. Yeah, but other people would say, Dalai Lama's not on our side. Some say Jesus was a Republican. <laughs> Don't laugh, when I lived in Dallas, I was by myself most of the time. I'm serious, I mean, it's not even a joke to them. We're in California, we laugh. Um, some say he's a Democrat. I remember um, a football player, after an exhilarating victory, says, he was thanking God for his victory, and he said if Jesus was alive today, he would be a six foot six inch defensive tackler, 260 pound, and he would always make the big plays. He truly believed that. <laughs> um, and it goes on and on. Jesus becomes the figment of our own design. Think about it for yourself. Jesus is there to comfort us when we sin. He's there, oh, to confirm our prejudices, to confirm whatever our preconceived notions are. Everyone has a dip on Jesus that he's the proponent of their cause. Think about it. You have the people who believe in the gentle Jesus. He's the hero of the pacifist. He would never be pro-war. Then you have the people who celebrate the humanitarian Jesus, that Jesus' mission to this world was just to end suffering. Therefore, if we are followers of Jesus Christ, that's our mission, to end all suffering. Then you have the Jesus who's a political revolutionary. Jesus tried to overthrow the corrupt institution of our day, of his day. Therefore, we as his followers need to do the same, even if it takes violence. Did you know that uh, in Cuba, they do pass around a picture of Jesus with a rifle slung over his? Yeah, I mean, we make Jesus fit whatever our cause is. And then there's the broad-minded Jesus. It's all about love. There's no, no standards. Don't tell me what to do, because it's about love. And if you tell me I'm wrong, you don't love me. And Jesus is about love. Then there's this, mis this picture of a misled and mundane Jesus. The Jesus who is a great guy, but you know, he was just kind of maybe hallucinating or something, and he just was misled about his mission in life. And you know, miracles, he's never done any. His disciples made them all up. There is actually a book written by scholars who talked about Jesus as the leader of a hallucinogenic mushroom cult. And yeah, these, you know, I mean, the picture can get so muddled. And I came to this crossroad in my life because I was meeting with, you know, I my neighbors. I felt like I really had to get to know my neighbors. And so I was kind of informally meeting with them to just to talk about Jesus. And you know what? In my neighborhood, there were all these views about Jesus. Everyone had a different view about Jesus. Everyone liked Jesus. And they thought Jesus was on their side. And I said to myself, who is Jesus, the Son of God? What am I to tell these people? To what do I pattern my life? Are you ever confused? You know, in the Bible, Colossians 1, 15, the Bible tells us that Jesus is the exact image of the invisible God. 
I can look at Jesus and therefore say, this is what God is like. He's the exact replica of God. So what do I see of God when I look at Jesus? What do I see of him? And I am staking my life on this faith based upon the man, Jesus, who is fully God and fully human. What is he like? And you know, meeting with these people who are totally unchurched, who comes from no church presupposition, I realize that there's got to be an answer. He's not all these things he cannot be. And I decided that, well, I've got to look at the Jesus of the Bible, the historical first-hand accounts by people who walked with him. And I've got to look at them through unchurched eyes. I've got to take away these 36 years of indoctrination, whether it's right or wrong. And I have to look. And I decided to look at it with my friends, my neighbors. The depth and the complexity of Jesus Christ astounded me, astounded them. No one could have made him up. And I think we all agreed, no one could have made him up. You know, while he was on earth, he baffled the scholars, the smart people. But then the children were able to understand him, and they loved him. He had authority to raise the dead and calm the raging sea by just speaking one word. Yet, he would not take himself down from the cross when he was being killed. He was sinless and perfect, yet he chose to hang around with the shady people. I mean, that really, I guess with, for my unchurched friends, that was the thing that jumped out at, him, at them. He actually preferred to hang out with the outcast of society. You know, he had a reputation for being a friend to sinners. The religious people of his day were scandalized by his actions. And I'm thinking, I think if I wasn't so, if I wasn't brought up in all these Sunday school stories and I just looked at Jesus, I would be scandalized too by the things he was doing. If I was making up the story of Jesus' life, I definitely would have honored um, the virtuous over the immoral, or at least told people they gotta clean up their acts before they can come to God. And yet Jesus never did that. Another thing that surprised me is that Jesus was often frustrated in his ministry. The Son of God frustrated? Yeah. A lot of time he would just blurt out, what can I do to make you understand? How many times do I have to say this to you? He was frustrated. And Jesus was frequently sad. I think, you know, that shocked me because I had this portrait of Jesus in my Sunday school room and he always had this ethereal smile. Jesus was frequently sad and capable of being scared and anxious as he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. We don't think about that. Such compassion and gentleness, yet he was downright harsh at times. Harsh and, you know, really tactless. And, you know, I was brought up, especially when I lived in Texas, you never say anything tactless. Even if you felt it, you always smile and say, yes, honey, yes, dear. And you know what? Uh, the Son of God, there were times when he was harsh and tactless. 
And you know what um, we talked about in our group? There were a lot of people who were not comfortable around Jesus. He was really out of sync. It's true, he was out of sync. Uh, he offended a lot of people. And one of the things we came to in our little group, we came to the Sermon on the Mount, and that was a big wall. You guys know what the Sermon on the Mount is? It takes up a big portion of the Gospel of Luke and Matthew. And these were the sermons that Jesus gave. Uh, oh, people in my group could not make sense of the Sermon on the Mount. This was harsh stuff Jesus was saying. These were extreme things. The conflicting picture, the gentle Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. And you know what? He's, Jesus starts out the Sermon on the Mount. You guys know this. Blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are the weak, blessed are the hungry. And this guy in my group says, how the heck are they blessed? They are the unluckiest lot in this world. That's, and that's just the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> you know what, we, we, I had to be honest, so we had to look at these verses. And then he proceeds, Jesus goes on to proclaim some pretty extreme and harsh things. And you know what, um, I'm fast forwarding for you. Amazingly, it was the Sermon on the Mount, these harsh things that really brought us together, that helped me make sense and gave me a glimpse of Jesus' heart and helped me to see what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It really surprised us. Let me just tell you about the Sermon on the Mount, the setting. Um, those of us who grew up in church are so used to it. Maybe we don't even read it and don't even sit up when we hear these extreme things. But the setting of the Sermon on the Mount is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He just got baptized. Um, he just chose his disciples. And people were puzzled about him. Now, we, growing up in the church or having hindsight, said, yeah, he's the Son of God. He's this Messiah. He's this great man. But at that time, Jesus just appeared on the scene, and people were puzzled. Who is he? Is he a prophet? Is he an imposter? Is he the Messiah that's going to deliver us from political um, oppression? Who is he? And then there's this group of people, the Pharisees, who were very suspicious of him. And they were watching to see everything Jesus was doing wrong. And Jesus did a lot wrong. His disciples, on the Sabbath, the day of rest, started picking things off the ground to eat because they were hungry. So the religious group were saying, ah, he can't be religious. He's breaking the law. But most important at this time was that people were coming to Jesus in huge, big flock masses. They were flocking to Jesus. Why? Not because he was the son of God, but he was performing miracles. He was doing all these things. He was healing people. Um, Luke 6, 17 says that he went down with his disciples and he stood on a level full place. A large crowd of people were there. They had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. People were trying to touch him and power was coming out of him. You get the feeling that people were around Jesus because he was a phenomenon. And they want to say, is he a magician? Maybe some of the power would fall on me. That's what it was all about at this time. They wanted to see how they can benefit from being near Jesus. And in the middle of all this, crowds and crowds of people around him, he calls his disciple, he goes, come sit by my feet. And you know what he does? 
he gives them his full-blown philosophy on life. And that's what one of the people in my group told me. He says, that's Jesus' philosophy on life. And I say, yep. He gave his disciples his full-blown philosophy on life. And you know what? He had people eating out of his hand. He could have really played it up. He could have increased his popularity. Instead, he says some pretty harsh stuff. And he turned their understanding of religion upside down when he could have just really held on a little bit longer and hook in the crowd, but he didn't. He told his disciples and everyone else who were listening what he is all about. And in this sermon, you get an explicit look at the heart of God because Jesus is the exact image of the living God. And it's an extreme message. Be perfect as God is perfect. Uh, what does he mean by that? How can I be perfect like God? Love your enemy. Give away your money. Has anyone ever been perfect? Can anyone successfully follow these things? Give away your money? Uh, people listening to that that day just go, huh? And you know what? When we came to the Sermon on the Mount, we had like a real, um, I really thought that my neighborhood Bible study group was going to fall apart at that time. Because uh, one of the men says, I tell you, that's why I never want to be a Christian. It's all these things you have to do. <laughs> I'm telling you right now, this is living proof. I don't want anything to do with this. You know, he was saying, just, just to have a bad thought about someone is the same as murdering them? Are you kidding me? Then I'm going to live my whole day, my whole life being a murderer. This is insane. And, you know, he actually walked out that day, and, you know, I'm just like cowering. I don't know how to continue. And I thought, yeah, maybe we should break this up. Um, <laughs> and, you know, what I realized, for, for me who has grown up in the church, I've been inoculated. When I come to these words of Jesus, I skip over them. Or I'm insensitized and I go, oh, they don't really apply, you know, it's just kind of for another time or whatever. But you're talking about people who are looking at the word of God, and they go, heck, I'm not going to take this. And you know what? The people of Jesus' day, and I had to remember this, they were under political oppression. They were living under Roman law. And they have seen Roman soldiers come into their village, take away babies, kill women. And Jesus is telling them, that they have to love their enemies? In this tumultuous climate of blood and tears, Jesus had the nerve to blaringly, with passion, say to them, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. And, and he goes on to say, it's easy for people who are good to you to love those people, but you must love the man who kicks you, who spits on you. Love the soldier who drives the sword into you. If a Roman soldier hits you on the left cheek, offer him the other. If a person of authority tells you to walk a mile, walk two miles. If a man sues you for a coat, give him the shirt off your back. Can you imagine how infuriated the people listening to this were? You know, one of the women, in, one of my neighbors says, you know, she was an elderly lady. She said to me, she goes, you know, I grew up. My mother went through the Japanese occupation of China. We couldn't even buy a Japanese car. 
Could you imagine telling me to love my enemy? How am I to respond to them? How am I to respond to these words that Jesus, does Jesus expect me to give to every panhandler that come, I come across? Should I abandon all my rights, my consumer rights? Because Jesus says that if someone asks you for your coat, give them your shirt as well. Should I cancel my insurance policies because Jesus says I'm not to worry about tomorrow? That I'm to trust him for everything? Uh, and then he says don't store up your treasures on earth. And is it that I can't watch TV because every time I watch TV, I may be tempted to lust? How am I to possibly translate these ethical ideals into my everyday life? How am I to live? Is this what Jesus wants? Is this what Jesus is all about? And to make matters worse, he goes on to say, for I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. I'm telling you, this was harsh for the people I was having a Bible study with. They couldn't deal with this. Uh, I'm sure this statement made the people of Jesus' day sit up and take notice. Who were the Pharisees? Those of us who grew up in church said they were the bad guys of the Bible, right? They were the ones that applauded Jesus' crucifixion. They were the ones behind killing Jesus. But who were the Pharisees? They were the religious leaders. They were the most respected and influential religious group of the day. To tell the crowds that their righteousness has to surpass these people were telling the crowds that forget it. You're never going to get into the kingdom of heaven. You know, the Pharisees were fastidious about the law of Moses. Now, the law of Moses is the Ten Commandments. And how many commandments are there? Ten, right? Well, the Pharisees made these Ten Commandments into 613 rules. I don't know how you can take 10 commandments and make them into 613 rules. 248 of those were things that you had to do. Commandments. 365 of them were prohibitions, things you cannot do. So the things you do and the things you cannot do add up to 613. Now, on top of the 613, they had 1,500 amendments to the 613. <laughs> so you're talking about a group of people who were so careful about every little thing. And they were perfect in their behavior, in their practice of religion. And Jesus says, you have to surpass them. What do you think the normal Jewish person listening to the... They looked up to these people as the example of what God wants. This is what God wants. This is the way I need to be in order to get to God. And you're telling me it has to go further than that? Are you crazy, Jesus? And he tells them, you think they're strict? You need to exceed that. And then he tells them, and this is what I mean. And what Jesus proceeds to tell them are things that 21st century listeners are having a hard time with just like those people. He uses the Ten Commandments as the starting point and he pushes it. He says, you have heard it said, I'm reading from Matthew, do not murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother is subject to judgment. Do not murder and he pushes it further. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully 
has committed adultery in her heart. Do not commit, pushes it further. You have heard us say, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other. You have heard us say, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your neighbors and pray for those who persecute you. And then comes the clincher. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. He went where even the Pharisees dare not go. He took the law and he pushed it. He made it impossible for anyone to keep. For most of my Christian life, I did not understand what these things have to do with me. And when I was sitting with my group of neighbors, I was speechless. I did not know what to say. And after that day, I went home. I mean, as I was at home, I thought about it, and I thought about it, and I kept praying, and I read scripture and read scripture. And what I realized, that what I never, never did was I never put into this equation grace. Never put into the equation was grace. Absolute grace that Jesus came to give to me and to you. And that's what I needed to tell them because the central paradox of our Christian message, center, center of our Christian message, is that I am judged by the righteousness of Jesus Christ that lives within me not by anything I can do. I am judged by the righteousness of Jesus Christ and not anything I can do. Yeah, Jesus gave some absolute, absolute ideals and behaviors. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Love your enemy. Love God with all your heart and soul. You know, I've never met anyone who can do that. You can be the purest, righteous saint. I, I don't even think Mother Teresa was able to completely fulfill the law. Grace. That's what I had to put into the equation. So I went back and I told this group, I said, let's go back and look at the life of Jesus and put grace in the equation. And you know what? They saw it. I didn't have to push it that infused with all these absolute ideals that Jesus declared, and he declared them passionately. On the other hand was the absolute grace that he demonstrated every day toward everyone he met. And it came together for us, the conflicting pictures of Jesus. You know what? One of the earliest pictures we see after the Sermon on the Mount, was this woman who was caught in adultery, not accused of adultery, caught in adultery. She was dragged in front of Jesus. And according to the law of Moses, she was to be stoned. And that's what people were saying. She was caught in adultery, Jesus. What should we do? And what does Jesus do? He writes on the ground, on the sand, and he looks up and he says, those of you who are without sin can cast a first stone. And no one dare cast a stone. Everyone left. And he looked at the woman. He says, are your accusers around? No. Neither do I accuse you. I've forgiven you. Go and sin no more. What is that about? Absolute grace. That's what it's about. Was this woman able to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees? No. 
but it was absolute grace that Jesus gave her. What about his beloved disciple Peter? Moments after Jesus was arrested, someone came up to him and go, aren't you the guy that hung around with Jesus? He goes, no, are you kidding me? <laughs> it was just some Joe Schmo on the street that asked him. It wasn't even an official. He had nothing at stake, and yet he couldn't even tell the truth. So, was he able to surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees? No. But what happens? After Jesus' resurrection, he tells Peter, you are going to be the pillar of the church. He takes an unworthy person who is not able to follow the absolute ideals of the law, and he makes them the pillar of the church. What is that about? Absolute grace. It's about absolute grace. Jesus demonstrated absolute grace in every turn. When he was up on the cross, he looked down at the people that were crucifying him, and he says, forgive them. They don't understand what they're doing. Jesus' absolute grace was inflexible and was all-encompassing. What about that thief on the cross? Jesus knew that he wanted to be saved because he was scared to death. And he asked Jesus, remember me, and Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. You know what? This thief will never have a chance to go to a Bible study, never have a chance to give money. He never have, he'll never have a chance to do anything. Yet Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. What's that about? That's about grace, absolute grace. Jesus lived these absolute ideals, but, and he declared these absolute ideals, but he demonstrated grace everywhere he went. And this is Jesus' heart. Here were all these people who looked to the Pharisees as the way to attain holiness, the way to come to God. And Jesus says, you know what? They haven't attained it neither, and you can't attain it that way. You can't. One of the person in my group, when we were going back to the Sermon on the Mount, and we were talking about grace, he said, you know what? Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount with gentle words. He says, gentle words for those in need. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the desperate. Then he goes on to teach us how to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. It's all about grace. Grace for the helpless. Grace for the desperate. Grace for those who can't get it together. Grace for those who can't possibly meet the ideals, the absolute standards. It's all about grace. You think about the stringency of the Sermon on the Mount and you contrast it to the people Jesus hung out with. There's a disconnect. Jesus was called a friend to sinner. He had compassion for those who could not possibly meet the ideals, the absolute ideals of God. The prostitutes, the extortioners. You know what? I came to the conclusion, Jesus spoke the words on the Sermon on the Mount, not to encumber us, but to tell us what God is like. This is the character of God. These are his absolute ideals. God is absolute holiness. He's absolutely righteous. You think you're righteous because you're following all these things? You can have thousands and thousands and thousands more precepts and you would still have missed the mark. 
You think about this. If I say to you, the goal is to, for you to throw the ball from here to Pac Bell Park, you may be able to throw the ball to the end of this auditorium. You would have missed the mark. I could throw this ball all the way, <laughs> you're right, to 18th <laughs> Avenue. I threw it further than you, but I still missed the mark. And that's what it's all about. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. These, this is who God is. He is absolute holiness. But you can load on yourself tons and tons of precepts, and you would still have missed the mark. Wow. It was eye-opening for us as we looked at that. Jesus did not proclaim the Sermon on the Mount so that we can slump our shoulders and say, oh my gosh, there's no way. He showed us the character of God. And he gave it to us to show us God's ideal. Yes, ideals that we can strive for. Why should I love my enemy? Because my gracious Father causes the sun to rise on the bad and the good. Why should I be perfect? Because my heavenly Father is perfect. Why should I pray? Because we who have human parents would not give us bad things, so much more our heavenly Father in heaven will give us what is good for us. Why should I not worry? Because my heavenly Father will lavish us with all good things. Look, he has clothed all of nature. Why would he not take care of me? Are these ideals for us? Absolutely. Can we obey them completely? No. And Jesus knew that. That's why it's about grace. Jesus explained the law to them, to us, to make us realize we are all guilty. You cannot say, I'm better than this other person. Grace does not depend on what we have done for Christ or God. Grace is absolutely about what God has done for me. Um, there's a story about um, C.S. Lewis, the great theologian of uh, Great Britain in the 1960s. The story goes that there was a huge conference of scholars coming together to talk about comparative, uh, comparative religion. And the whole purpose was to talk about what unique belief do Christiani does Christianity have that the other religions don't have. So the debate goes on. And they said, well, is it the resurrection? No, because other religions have um, people coming back from the dead. Is it the incarnation? No, other religions have God taking human form. So the debate goes on and on. And C.S. Lewis walks into this meeting late, and he turns to his colleague and goes, what's all the fuss about? And the colleague tells him, we're debating what Christianity's unique contribution is in the world of uh, religion. And without batting an eyelash, C.S. Lewis goes, it's grace. And after some discussion, everybody agreed it's grace. Because Christianity is the only religion that dare to make God's love and acceptance totally unconditional. Christianity is the only religion that dares to make God's love and acceptance totally unconditional. I don't know, it really did something to me and to those people that I met with. I'm beginning to understand how precious grace is in my life. Maybe it's my old age and I realize that I cannot do the things I thought I was capable of changing in my own life. 
So we are not judged by that ability. We are judged absolutely and completely by the finished work of Jesus. So you ask, which is the real Jesus? The gentle Jesus? The revolutionary Jesus? You know what? Grace brings it all together. Because grace turns the table on the religion that measures spirituality based upon what you do. Whether you've attended enough meetings, whether you've read your Bible enough, whether you've kept all the rules, grace turns the table on that kind of spirituality and cuts to the heart. What is your motive? Do you understand your need for God? How then should I live? My goodness, I live in the absolute grace of Jesus. This is what has been transforming for me. There's real freedom in understanding grace, real freedom. I am free to accept myself. I am free to accept those around me. I don't look around and say, oh, why, are, why isn't she doing this? Why isn't she doing that? I don't even say whether someone deserves my help or not. I spend so much less energy uh, being critical and concerned about other people's choices. You know, I have less, I actually spend less energy also worrying about what people think of me because externals are not that important. Because Jesus sees no one as unworthy, I need to see no one as unworthy. You know, in this world, we normally flock to the successful, the rich, the beautiful. In grace, Jesus introduces a new logic. Everyone's the same. God loves the poor, suffering, and the persecuted. So should I. Because God sees no undesirables, neither do I. God has really challenged me to look at the world through grace-healed eyes. And you know what? That little group, not everyone has accepted Jesus Christ. But we're closer in our understanding to who Jesus is. We're closer together. Do I care about God's absolute ideals of righteousness? Yes, I do. I have the freedom to try to live it out the best I can, knowing that I will never meet his, all his absolute ideals. I serve, I do good, not because I have to, not, you know, not because that's what everyone should be doing right now, or that's not even because people deserve it. It is because God extended his love to me when I didn't deserve it. Therefore, I can live grace out in my life, regardless of whether people deserve it or not. It's a freeing thing. It is absolutely freeing to know that I can live and I am covered by the grace of Jesus Christ. It has transformed me and has given me a new spirit of love and enthusiasm as I live out my Christian life. And it's affected the way I extend grace to my children, my husband, and my coworkers, and those around me. I am absolutely accepted based upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So that's my word today. <laughs>